passion, drive, and patience. What brings home the winning trophy is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance from superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has got you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to turn your car into the MVP and bring home that win. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Yo, Trey. Kevin, what's up, man? You know, I've been thinking, what would have happened if the NBA never vetoes the Chris Paul trade to the Lakers and we get CP3 in the same backcourt as Kobe in L.A.? Well, you get a very happy Jack Nicholson, for sure. And the Lakers probably win a bunch more championships. CP3 finally gets a ring or two or three. And the Kardashian empire is forever altered. What did you just say? Hey, everybody, I'm Trey Wingo. And I'm Kevin Frazier, and we're teaming up on a new weekly sports podcast from Wondery Alternate Routes. As former sports center anchors and current sports obsessives, we're consumed by all the what-if questions that make being a sports fan so excruciatingly fun. If you're like us, then you also live and die on the fallout from every drop pass. Or play call. Each week on Alternate Routes, we'll take a flashpoint in sports, break down what actually happened, then explore every alternate scenario and the ripple effects it would have caused. Follow Alternate Routes on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus. It's the amazing Rico Bronia podcast with your host, Evan Roberts. Well, let's start off the Rico by congratulating the Giant fans who are listening. Congratulations to the Giants. They shockingly made the playoffs. They shockingly win a playoff game, and they're on to face the Philadelphia Eagles. It did have me thinking briefly, is there any season in the history of the Mets that kind of matches what the Giants are doing? Obviously, 1969 is like the hallmark of miracles. I mean, they're the miracle Mets for a reason. They went from losing 100 games every single season, and then all of a sudden, out of the clear blue sky, they went 100 games and win the World Series. So you put that one aside, because obviously that's the most shocking Mets season in history. But if you think about it, maybe 84, when they went from losing 94 games in 83 to winning 90 games in 84, but they didn't make the playoffs. Obviously, 86, you could kind of feel coming after being in a dogfight pennant race in 85. Obviously, 88 wasn't a surprise because you're kind of in the midst of the powerful Mets. 99, but remember, they were in a pennant race in 1998. They actually choked down the stretch of the year that year. So really, the big shock was that they were good in 97 because they sucked in 96. Uh, 2006, you sort of felt coming too because they made a big jump in 05 to be sort of in a pennant race. And then 06, they became the best team in the National League. So really, it's 2015. And I looked back at this real quick. The over-under going into the 2015 season for the Mets was 81.5, which I remember thinking at the time was low. I thought the Mets were going to be good in 2015. A year earlier, they won 79 games, so they weren't winning, but you could feel things starting to change. You knew Matt Harvey was coming back from Tommy John. DeGrom was coming off winning rookie of the year. 
Uh, we went into the season thinking Zach Wheeler was going to pitch. He obviously missed the entire season for Tommy John. We knew about Syndergaard. We were pumped about Darno. Like, I remember going into 15 with a lot of hope. I thought they'd at least compete for a wild card spot, but obviously they overachieved from that, and they won 90 games. But how about this factoid before we get into the current Mets? And there's a lot to get into today. We'll talk about the fallout from Correa the fourth outfielder they should go after, some trade ideas, some bullpen ideas, the international free agent signings, um, and thinking about next year. But before we get to that, the biggest jump in win total in the history of the New York Mets, obviously, was 1969. They improved by 27 games when they went from 73 wins to 100 wins. But if I asked you right now, Pete, besides that year, where and what season was the biggest jump in wins? What would be your guess? I think it might have to be last year, this 2022. Yeah. yeah, it was last year. They went from 77 wins to 101 wins, but we all went into last year with high expectations. So even though they improved by 24 games, which is an absurd number and the second highest improvement in the history of the franchise it doesn't feel like last year was a surprise because we went into last year saying this team better win. Yeah, I mean, I I think you're right. I think the expectations were so high. People forgot that they were so bad the year before. And again, it wasn't even like they were so bad for the first half of the season. They were really just bad the second half because they were up there. They were in first place until they weren't in first place. So uh, you're right. Like I feel like with Steve Cohen, this team always has high expectations. So you're always going to forget about if they even have like a bad moment. Yeah, and I think you're right though about if you think about the way 2021 went, it was a bad final month and a half. For a big part of that season, the Mets were a first-place team. And so the season ended in disappointment, but we spent most of the year thinking the team was actually halfway decent. So it's odd. You improve by 24 games, and I don't think any of us would say, yeah, the 2022 season is the biggest surprise season in the history of the Mets. It's not even close because we went into the season with huge expectations. But congratulations to the Giants. They are having that special kind of season. You know, I've, I've rooted for teams, the Mets, other teams I root for, where there are surprise seasons. But when you think about going into a year as a rebuilding season, which is really what the Giants were looking at, and you end up stunningly making the playoffs. And then even after doing that, winning a playoff game, which is essentially going on a playoff run, that really is crazy. So congratulations to uh, the giant fans who happen to be Met fans. Now, as far as the Mets are concerned, let's start with Correa because we, obviously we know he's with Minnesota. We focused a lot on what happened on our last Rico Bronia, but we did get the Carlos Correa press conference and we did get Scott Boris going on the offensive, where Scott Boris is blaming the Mets and essentially asking, hey, how come the Mets went back and asked the Giants doctor, or at least the same doctor that advised the Giants this ankle is an issue, why did they go to him? Here's a quote from Scott Boris. He gave an interview with USA Today. I gave the Mets all the information. We had them talk to four doctors. They knew the issue the Giants had, and yet they still call the same doctor the Giants used for his opinion. There was no new information. So why negotiate a contract if you're going to rely on the same doctor? 
It was different with the Giants because a doctor had an opinion they didn't know about. But the Mets had notice of this. They knew the opinion of the Giants. So why did you negotiate when you knew this thing in advance? That's the comment from Scott Boris. Now, a couple of things. First of all, Scott Boris doesn't have a lot of credibility with many of us. This is a guy who not too long ago, Joe and I had on when we were doing our show. And I pushed him on Oliver Perez. And, eh, you know, that one was a disaster. And he still claimed, no, nah, it was a great contract. No, nah, it worked out. Now, when you really look at it, Oliver Perez was fantastic. So he's always pushing a narrative that benefits him. Now, am I denying the facts of what he's saying that the Mets probably talked to the Giants doctor at some point, or at least the same doctor that had issues with Carlos's ankle? No, I don't deny that. I don't think that's the only doctor the Mets talked to, and I don't think that was the end-all, be-all. But sure, the doctor who advised the Giants, hey, stay away from this guy because this ankle's going to be a problem, I don't begrudge the Mets for talking to him. But I think Scott may be portraying this in a light where that's basically all they talked to and how they came to the conclusion that Correa's ankle was an issue. That's the story Scott Boris is trying to put out there. Again, the Mets wanted the player. But the Mets have to be smart when they're handing out a $300 million contract. And so I expect that the Mets do their, did their due diligence on this by not just talking to the doctor that raised concerns with the Giants, but talking to multiple doctors. But then I hear Carlos Correa at his press conference say, uh, you should have talked to my doctor, the guy who performed the surgery. Well, the guy who performed the surgery, you're going to trust him over an independent doctor who says this isn't going to hold up? And look, here's the truth. None of us know if this ankle is going to hold up. I have no idea. I don't think Scott Boris has any idea. But I don't look at it as the Mets just literally talked to one guy and that one guy is the one that put the fear of God into them about Carlos Correa's ankle. And a lot of this has to do with credibility. Scott Boris isn't going to come out and say, yeah, pretty much every doctor thinks the ankle's the crap, but we found the one schmuck who told Minnesota go for it. Like he's going to protect his client. And I understand why Scott Boris is bitter and why Carlos Correa is bitter. They signed multiple $300 million contracts, and they couldn't seal the deal. And they couldn't seal the deal because there was legitimate concern about the ankle. As far as why the Mets still negotiated a contract knowing there was concern. I think that comes back down to the excitement that Steve Cohen had and the excitement that we had. We were the same. You know, as soon as we heard that the press conference was canceled and it looked like the deal between the Giants and Correa was falling apart, we all had the same opinion. Pete said it. Go get the guy. Let's go get the guy. Steve Cohen thought the same thing. We didn't even think for a second, hey, maybe there's a reason why this whole thing fell apart. So Cohen deserves some blame for this, no doubt. I think he acted like a fan, which is a part of the charm that he has. He heard Correa's available. He's on the phone with Boris as he's vacationing in Hawaii. And he says, yeah, let's make a deal. Not even thinking, we better check this ankle out. But look, that's why deals are pending physical. So even though Cohen aggressively made the offer, got Boris to agree with it, they still had to check out the ankle. And while Steve Cohen is in Hawaii on vacation, 
less than 24 hours after the press conference is canceled, obviously he's not going to know every detail about what concerned the Giants about the ankle. At that point, when you're on the phone with Boris, you can only take his word. So I don't know what Steve thought when he went to sleep that night in Hawaii after he signed them. I don't know if he thought, oh, this isn't going to be any problem at all. I'm sure Scott's right. The ankle's the greatest ankle ever. This won't be a problem. But obviously the Mets were going to go out and do their due diligence. And after they did it, and yes, I'm sure they talked to the same doctor that had concern about Carlos's ankle, they made the decision, let's cut this offer in half. Let's protect ourselves if he's go- if he's going to remain under contract past six years. Let's make him take a physical every year. Let's make him prove the ankle's healthy. And so that's why this whole thing fell apart, and he's a twin. And, you know, Carlos Correa had to sit there and explain to the fan base, yeah, this is where I wanted to be the whole time, <laughs> which, is, which is always tough for the player. You know, if you're the player, I guess you could try to be honest and say, look, I liked it here, I loved it here, but the Giants made me a really good offer, and I was excited to go there. And then, when that, and then when that fell apart, the Mets made me a really good offer, and I was excited to go there. Unfortunately, none of that worked out. Luckily, you guys made me a pretty good offer, and I'm excited to be back in Minnesota. <laughs> oh, boy. He couldn't just say he was guaranteed $150 million more and it didn't work out. So he, he sucked it up and got took the guaranteed money. I mean, that's basically what it comes down to. You nailed everything as far as what, what Boris was, was was trying to spew to the media and to everybody, uh, that he's pissed off at Cohen and the Mets, that how dumb could they be go you know going for this one doctor, et cetera, et cetera. But the reality is, is no one, not even Carlos Correa, trust his ankle, which is why he took the guaranteed money of $200 million with the Twins. In the end, he would have made more money with the Mets, but he doesn't trust his own ankle either. Let's be serious. Well, I think you're always going to take the guaranteed money. I can't blame the player for doing that. I would take the guaranteed money. You would take the guaranteed money. So yeah. I, don't know if that, I don't know if that means he doesn't trust his ankle more than it's, hey, I want to take the guaranteed money. I don't want to risk anything that could happen over the next six years. But but you but hold on, you're t- we're we're talking about and you're right. The risk factor is always there, and I think that he was trying to give opt outs. Like uh, if you go through the Boris stuff, he's like, well, if he does it, if he misses fifty games or whatever it is, uh, some of it's not uh, you know it's not a guarantee. The guarantee doesn't go through, or there were right, some, right. some details in there. But I I get it. But you're going to try to convince your fan base in Minnesota now. I'm where we're supposed to be. Meanwhile, realistically, Mets would have paid him more money in general and had a champ chance to win another World Series. I think all of that, that feel, all of that aside, like money and championship or going to Minnesota for a little bit more money, wouldn't you still want to come here anyway? Everybody's different. You know, I can't begrudge him that because I still think most athletes in general are going to take the guaranteed money and they're going to take the most money. And the Minnesota Twins offered him the most money. I mean, they, they just, they ultimately, they did that. Now, where does he have a better chance to win a championship? Obviously, with the way the Mets are spending and with town on the Mets roster, he has a better chance to win a title here. But Carlos Correa has already won a championship. And maybe when you've already got one, you don't feel the need to give up money to try to win another. And one other thing about this Correa linked to the Mets this year and beyond, he will be linked this year because the Mets are not as good of a team because they don't have him. 
That's obvious. You know, we're going to talk about some of the other options on guys they can go after. And none of these guys are patches on the fanny of Carlos Correa. We all understand that. So the Mets as a team are not as good as if they had signed Carlos Correa in the short term. So I think for 2023, if Carlos Correa has a big season and the Mets struggle offensively, this will be harkened back to a lot. I can't even promise that I won't harken back to it because at some point, if the Mets are sitting six games under 500 and their offense is sucking and Correa is the favorite to win the MVP in the American League, and I get it, I'm painting this extreme scenario, we're naturally going to say, hey, great decision not signing Correa. But here's why that's only a one-year thing, in my opinion. This franchise, whether it's Manny Machado or Shohei Otani or others, they're going to spend big. In the future, they're going to spend big next year, the year after, the year after that. I think Steve Cohen is making that clear to us. So I think once they sign some other big free agent next offseason, you'll no longer think about Correa. I don't think he'll live in Met history the way a guy like Vlad Guerrero does or the way a guy like A-Rod does where he's the guy that got away. Because I think ultimately the Mets are going to go out next year. Not that I want to think about that now because I really don't. But I'm just making the point that a year from now, I think the link between the Mets and the what if with Correa goes away. But I think for this season, this upcoming year, there's going to be a lot of talk about Correa, especially if the Mets struggle offensively. No question. I, I think you nailed it. You're right. The um, next year, we don't want to talk about next year, but the reality is there will be there there won't be a player that the Mets aren't in on. There won't be free agents that are like, oh, the Mets never had a chance on him. I can't believe it. We're not missing out on a lot of guys. Like You said, oh, if Manny Machado opts out, if Shohei Otani's on the market, Mets are going to be in on one of those two. They're going to be in on both. They're no, both going to be Mets. I like think, think about that. I understand that we have a whole year to get there, and that's why I'm like, I'm a now guy. I want to see what the Mets can do now. That's why I was upset about the Korea thing, but Hindsight 2020, if you're telling me Manny Machado and Shohei Otani are both on the Mets in 2024, holy crap. That's yeah, ridiculous. Uh, it's great. It's exciting. I don't want to become, because I'm already like this. I'm a basketball fan. You know, I love the NBA. But in the NBA, we think about free agents two years out. I don't want to do that in Major League Baseball. And that's the life we lived as Nick fans and Net fans, where, oh, two years from now, LeBron's a free agent. Oh, wait, two years from now, Durant's a free agent. I got him, by the way. Oh, two years from now, Giannis is a free agent. Like, I don't want to do that. So while I understand Manny Machado's a free agent, I understand Shohei Otani's a free agent, Julio Urias is a free agent. Like, we went through this months ago in talking about the pitchers and why short-term contracts with Verlander and Scherzer make so much sense because there's a way to reload every two years. So I fully am aware of who's a free agent. I just don't want that to be something we're thinking about that much because I don't want to think about it. I want to think about this season. Enjoy the I'll, moment. Enjoy yeah. the moment, dude. The, the reason why Nick fans and net fans would dream about free agents a year or two in advance is because we had nothing else is because we looked at LeBron as a savior because we looked at Durant as a savior. Well, right now the Mets have a good team on paper. Now, would they have had a better team if they signed Correa? Of course. No one's going to argue that. But now it's over. He's not going to be a Met. But I do warn you. I do warn my fellow Met fans. And I, I will try my darndest not to be that guy. I, I'm trying. But if this offense struggles, 
If they're missing a bat protecting Pete, and it's obvious in the midst of this season, there are going to be moments where you, where me, where a lot of people listening, even if they don't want to, are going to utter, I wish we had Correa. But we don't. He's a twin. Old man winter here. If I had it my way, it would stay winter all year long. Short days, wind chill, black ice, and a good polar vortex. Oh, <laughs> heaven. Wait, is it getting warm in here? Your cold snap is over, old man winter. Spring has arrived. Spring. Spring is here, which means it's the perfect time to get away in the Hyundai you've always wanted. Visit the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event, where you can get great deals on all of our award-winning Hyundai models, like the tech-filled Tucson and Kona, as as well as the spacious Palisade. Enjoy wherever you go with the peace of mind that comes with America's best warranty and three years or 36,000 miles of complimentary maintenance. But hurry in. These deals won't last. Add more joy to your journey at the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event. Now get 0% APR or up to 1,500 bonus cash on the Hyundai Tucson. Now, during the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event. Offers end soon. Call 562-314-4603 for details. Presented by T-Mobile, the official wireless partner of Odyssey Sports. With an awesome network and great savings, there's never been a better time to join T-Mobile. Visit your neighborhood store to make the switch today. Now, as far as some other targets, uh, a few of them came off the board over the last couple of days. Nelson Cruz signed with the San Diego Padres. That's Hoff's boy. I I was never into Nelson Cruz. I never wanted Nelson Cruz. I think he's cooked. Uh, So I was not upset to see him sign with the San Diego Padres. But I did get an email, and we'll read some emails a little bit later on, of one guy arguing why we should have gone after Nelson Cruz. But we'll get to that later. I'm not mad about it. I didn't prefer him. Guy number two off the board, Andrew McCutcheon signs with the Pittsburgh Pirates. This one, the Mets wanted. Uh, Apparently, the Mets made a better offer for Andrew McCutcheon, McCutcheon than even the Pirates did. But the Pittsburgh Pirates offered him the sentimentality of going back to Pittsburgh, and they offered him playing time, which the Mets, you know, really couldn't guarantee. McCutcheon, you got to think about Andrew McCutcheon, who's 36 years old now, as a different kind of player than he was, you know, eight years ago when he's winning the MVP, nine years ago when he was winning the MVP. I think it was 2013. So 10 years ago, Jesus, oh my God, I'm going up a year every, every minute I think about it, which is crazy. But he's not that guy. He's... A high on base, little bit of pop, can hit lefties kind of guy. But last year, he started to decline. I mean, he's been declining really over the last couple of years. And that was a part of why when I saw he went back to Pittsburgh, I wasn't devastated. He's still better against lefties. But if you look at his numbers last year, even against lefties, they were not that good. And he's 36 years old. And I'm not sure it's getting much better. So, yeah, he's a selective hitter. Yeah, he can get on base. Yeah, he's better against lefties. But even his numbers last year, they left a lot to be desired. Mets clearly wanted him. They made a higher offer than the Pirates did. The Twins made an offer, too, and he decided to go to Pittsburgh. But I'm not devastated about it because I don't think that would have been the best fit. The other guy off the board is Trey Mancini, another guy we talked a lot about. Trey Mancini has been linked to the Mets numerous times uh, during the trade deadline. He was one of the names, and luckily the Mets didn't trade for him because he went to the Astros and sucked. He was terrible. Hit buck 76, very low OPS. Did hit a bunch of home runs, but didn't do much for the Astros. And I don't think he did much in the postseason. I don't think he hit at all in the postseason. 
He had in that fact, one defensive play at first base, if I'm correct. I think that's was his claim to fame in the playoffs. That was it. Yeah, here is postseason numbers. One for 21 with eight strikeouts. That's an 048 average. So, yeah. Hey, he would have fit right in with us. It would have been perfect. He'd take the place of Darren Ruff. Exactly. Oh, he would have been acquired instead of Darren Ruff, I guess. Uh, but Mancini signs with the Cubs. Kind of the same thing. I'm not, I'm not devastated. As far as who else is out there, a couple of names. Tommy Pham continues to be available as a free agent. Uh, another guy who, you know, Tommy Pham is 34, 35 years old. He had a very crappy year last year with Cincinnati and Boston. I think he was a little bit better against lefties, but not, not enough. You know, there wasn't good enough numbers against lefties where I'd say, oh, yeah, stick that bat in the lineup. He was better against lefties than his overall numbers, but still, he's 35-36. I'm not sure he's ever going to produce what he did in his prime. And really, what was his prime? You know, I guess it was 2019, 2018, 2017 when he was a quality player. So Fam's an option. Jurickson Profar is an option. I don't want Profar because I want Pop. The Mets need pop. The Mets didn't hit enough home runs last year. So I go back to Adam Duvall. Adam Duvall continues to be the best fit for this team. The concern around Duvall is that he got hurt halfway through last year and he had season-ending wrist surgery to repair a torn tendon sheath in his left wrist. And he missed the entire second half of the season. What is he in terms of recovering from that injury? Will that injury affect him? Going into 2023, I tried to look into it. I tried to see if there was any report on his health. I've seen nothing. All I know is that Duval gives you the max power in terms of the guys that are available. It was a guy who two years ago hit 38 home runs and led the league in RBIs with 113 RBIs. Strikes out a lot, didn't hit for a high average. I get all that, but still, for a team that needs pop, he hit 38 home runs. And in even, in, even in a year like last year, where, again, he missed half the time, his numbers weren't great, his numbers were down. Against lefties, he slugged 562 with an 844 OPS and hit six home runs in just 78 plate appearances against lefties. So even in a year in which he you know, obviously missed a lot of time and wasn't very healthy, he was still really productive against left-handed pitching. And one other thing about Duval, good defensive player. You know, we sort of forget that when we think about these right-handed bats. Adam Duval won a gold glove. Won a gold glove. He can play anywhere in the outfield. He can play left field. He can play center field. He can play right field. I think, in fact, he has mostly played center field, or at least last year he mostly played center field. Throughout his career, he's mostly played right field. Even has a little bit of experience at first base. Not that this team needs that necessarily. But that's the guy. You know, uh, if there's a concern about him recovering from the wrist, okay, fine. Because who knows? Guy had wrist surgery. I, I understand that. But looking at him, the ability to defend, the ability to hit left-handed pitching, he's available, he's a free agent, he's 34 years old. He's got postseason experience, obviously, winning that World Series with the Atlanta Braves. Bring him in. Bring him in. That's the guy. Is there a guy you prefer, Pete, that I haven't mentioned? I know all your guys are off the board. Uh, so. I know. I know. It kind of sucks. I mean, I'm looking through right now. I mean, I still see 
uh, here's the thing is you're right. As far as versatility, we need a fourth outfielder, so that's why Duvall makes sense. Other guys, other sticks that I do like, they don't really fit that outfield mold, so it kind of it just it's just a bat. So like a guy like Miguel Sano, I believe, is still out there. Correct? Yeah, yeah except he sucks. He does suck, but he's got last year he was terrible. <laughs> But he's got that thirty home run pop in him that has happened for. That's not like a, it's not like he's never happened. And then Yuri Gurriel, somebody that we've both talked about. I know he's up there in age, but I, I still like. I don't mind if someone's going to be a veteran that's going to be able to. Again, he's not going to get a lot of at bats. That's the problem. He doesn't have anywhere really to play on the field besides first base. So that's why I struggle with signing him. But again, maybe not so much pop, but he can give you big hits, and he has that experience. He came from the Astros, for crying out loud. Yeah, Gurriel had a, a terrible regular season last year, but really hit in the postseason, which almost wiped away how crappy he was in the regular season. And he hit lefties last year. You you hit on the two negatives with him, and one of the negatives isn't fair. He doesn't hit for a lot of pop, but the guy's won a batting title. The guy's a good, good hitter, puts bat on ball, has postseason experience. He's getting up there in age. He's 39. The other negative is you really don't have a lot of position versatility with him. He's a good defensive first baseman. He, too, has won a gold glove, and I don't think that gold glove was that long ago. I think he won it in the last couple of years, if I'm not mistaken. I think it was 2020 or 2021, so it's a recent gold glove. He can play a little bit of third base, but I doubt you would even use him over there, considering you have Escobar and you have Beatty and you have Guillaume. I have an email about that that I'll address. Guillaume. <laughs> That's the thing I, it pisses off the most people about me, apparently. The way I pronounce his name. And I admit, I got a mental block against it. That's why I have to slow down before I say his name. But I'm making the effort. Uh, so Gurriel gives you the stick. He doesn't give you the pop. He doesn't give you the position versatility. A couple of trade ideas. Four ideas. Three of them are mine. One, I want to give credit to Rising Apple. I read it on Rising Apple the other day. It was a pretty good idea, and that's the idea of pursuing Randall Gritchick. We'll start with him. Uh, of Colorado, hits lefties, especially last season he hit lefties. Had a OPS above 900. I know you got the Coors Field concerns with everybody, but he does have a resume outside of Coors Field. So even though the home road splits are pretty dramatic, you know he spent a bunch of years in St. Louis, a bunch of years in Toronto, and he's had good years. Now, he's been a, a pretty good, productive player. I question what it would cost. And I really wouldn't be willing to give up that much. So if the Rockies are just willing to dump him because he's making $9 million and the Rockies are a confused organization that doesn't know what they're doing, I'll gladly take him. But I don't think I would trade that much value for Gritchick. But that was a good idea I read on Rising Apple. Here are the other ideas I have. Number one, I'm bringing this one back, as I mentioned this months ago, as a trade idea, and that is calling up the Orioles. They could use another starting pitcher, offering a Carlos Carrasco, and taking back Anthony Santander. Anthony Santander supplies the power this organization's looking for. Plus, unlike a lot of the other guys we're mentioning who are in their mid-30s or late 30s, he's 28 years old. That, of course, leads you to question are the Orioles willing to par with him? That's why you've got to offer something. Unlike Gritchick, who I really wouldn't give up much value for, Santander's 28 years old. He can play right field. Starling Marte, I love the guy. I don't know how healthy he's going to be this year. 
So you acquire a guy the value of Santander. He's not only a DH option, big-time DH option. He's not only an option to just play a lot and sit Marcana. He's also protection in case Starling Marte gets hurt. Last year, Santander went out, played 150-plus games, hit 33 home runs to a 773 OPS. And yes, as a switch hitter, he did a better job against lefties. He mashed lefties. 913 OPS, 293 batting average. What it comes down to with Santander, I don't think I need to sell you guys on what kind of player he is. He's a good player. They could use him. He fits this team. It comes down to what can you give the Orioles to make them think the deal's worth it. Would you trade Carlos Carrasco? Do you feel comfortable enough in the pitching depth that the Mets have where you say, okay, fine, David Peterson, Tyler McGill, here's your chance to move a Carlos Carrasco. You probably have to include a prospect too. But would you make that deal, Carrasco, for Santander? I would, but I, I, again, like, what's the prospect? Because I feel like you're going to need a, a more significant prospect, no? I mean, I'm giving the Orioles a middle-of-the-rotation arm. Now, he's 35. They need an ace, though. Here. They need an ace. Who's their ace? They're not getting an ace for Anthony Santander. No, but uh, how much control does Anthony Santander, Santander have? He's, he's got, 20, one, he's a he's got one, more, one more year after this. All right. I guess you could position it that way, too, because what are you going to lose with free agency, right? Well, look, I, I, I understand Carrasco is probably not enough. Uh, I'm just saying I'm giving them a major league player that can help them, a middle-of-the-rotation arm, and then, yeah, you probably... Okay, Santan, uh, Carrasco and Vientos for Santander. Is that a fair trade? Okay, now you're talking... I I, I don't think the Mets will do because I think they, high, they they value Vientos a little bit more even though he hasn't proven himself yet. And Santander's clearly an upgrade. I mean, he could basically play... Every day in the outfield for you. Oh, yeah, yeah. He could play over Cannon left field. But then Cannon becomes your depth versatility guy. You make yourself a deeper team if you trade for a guy like Santander. I'd make that trade. I, I, I'm a little... Like, you never want to take for granted starting pitching depth. So I pause on that. Vientos, I'd, I'd have no problem moving. Because I look at Santander and say, isn't that the best case scenario of what Mark Vientos could be? A guy who could hit 33 home runs and in Santander's case plays a position. Buck has no confidence in Vientos playing any position and he's a switch hitter. So the Vientos part, I wouldn't really hesitate on. It's in a year in which you're relying on veteran, veteran. I say veteran twice because they're that old. Veteran, veteran arms at the top of your rotation. Are you okay with trading pitching depth? You know, it's a gamble because... Carrasco supplies that. Verlander, Scherzer, they're wild cards because of their age. Like, I can't sit here confidently, especially after Max missed time last year, and Verlander is only a year and a half removed from Tommy John surgery, and expect them both to make 30 starts. We saw how many starts were missed by the combo of Scherzer and DeGrom a year ago. Quintana you feel good about. You feel good about Senga, at least in theory. And then your depth guys are Peterson and McGill uh, and Luke Casey. Are you willing to trade a key arm as part of that depth? Is it robbing Peter to pay Paul in a way? But I also understand that to get a guy like Santander, you got to give something. You're not getting him for nothing. So he's an interesting guy to keep an eye on. Uh, The other two names are 
names that people will be pissed at because they don't excite you at all. But I think they're useful players. One guy's coming off a good year. One guy's coming off a bad year. Bobby Dalbeck of the Boston Red Sox, right-handed bat, can play first base, can play third, not an outfielder, so you don't really gain that fourth outfielder, but you do get that right-handed bat who can hit lefties in 2021. 278, 877 OPS with 11 home runs. Even last year, in just an awful season for Dalback against lefties, the numbers weren't horrific. 240, 755 OPS. I'm not sure, though, with Trevor's story out, they may want to keep the infield depth that they have. And the other guy is Rob Refsnyder. Rob Refsnyder has bounced around the league. Remember, he was a prospect with the Yankees many years ago. He could play everywhere. He could play the outfield. He came up as a second baseman. Can play first base. Really, you could stick this guy anywhere. Last year with Boston, he finally blossomed. So maybe the Red Sox want to hold on to him and don't want to give him away. But the guy at 300 with an 881 OPS in 57 games. So I'd call the Red Sox. I'd see if it, what it's going to cost. Again, I probably wouldn't give up all that much for it. But Rob Refsnyder is another guy to keep an eye on. But these are the names we're talking about. Kevin Pilari could bring him back too. He's another option. I don't expect any kind of surprise big trade because I just can't see who would be out there unless you consider Santander to be a surprise big trade. But we did make a trade this week. We acquired a human being in exchange as the player to be named later for James McCann. And when that came out and I saw the Mets acquired a left-handed hitting first base slash outfielder who's played a couple of seasons in the Dominican Republic Summer League, I said to myself, holy crap, the Orioles gave us a human being for James McCann. So Luis De La Cruz, you may never play for the Mets. You may never even play above single A. But thank you for being a human being we got back for the corpse of James McCann. We'll probably have a good year with the Orioles. Can't you see that happening now? Oh, of course. But I I, I got to be honest. When I looked up, uh, was it Jorge? Del, not Jorge De La Cruz. Who was it? Jose De La Luis Cruz. De Luis De La Cruz. Cruz. When I looked at Luis De La, De La Cruz, the first person I found was a 33-year-old catcher in the Atlanta Braves uh, organization. Hasn't played in 20, since like 2015. So I was like, <laughs> what is I mean, I, I guess. I guess we should be thrilled that we got anything back. So I was, sat, was very excited to see that it was actually a young prospect, a 20-year-old so that that would listen. It's amazing, and you're right. James McCann's going to have a decent season with the Orioles. A lot of less pressure. Like that's one thing I noticed. Some of these guys just can't handle New York, and I've talked to many guys about that. It's just a thing that's that's true, and a lot of people put the fans on that that note that they just the fans are too hard on them, and that's the reason why some guys just can't handle it. Yeah, you know, here's what I wonder about with James McCann, and I'll, I'll take the L on this because when they signed him after the 2020 season, going into 2021. I thought it was a good move. I liked it. I obviously saw how productive he was with the White Sox in 2020, and he wasn't bad in 2019, and he had a reputation as a really good defensive catcher. So I saw the move, and I didn't hate it. Obviously, it turned out to be a disaster. Was it him not being able, was it him not being able to handle New York, or was it the fact that what he did with the White Sox over half a season in 2020 and then most of a season in 2019 was just flat out an aberration because when you look back at what he was with Detroit he kind of is what he is now you no know, was not much of a hitter you no know, would run into a home run every once in a while 
but hit about 220, 230. And so maybe we just got fooled by what happened over a small sample size. You know, you add up his time in 19 and the brief time he played in 2020, it's 150 games. That's all we were looking at. And I think the hope was, well, he's coming into his prime. So that 150 games are fair to look at because now he's 31. He's figured it all out. He's a quality offensive player. He's brilliant defensively. This is going to be fantastic. So I don't know if it's definitely that he's a guy that couldn't handle New York more than it was. We just got it really, really wrong with him. Yeah, well, the other, also the other thing is, too, it's like it felt the very, and again, I hate to say this name, but it felt very Will Pond-esque because the other guy that was on the market was Ramuto, and that was like the, that's the guy to go for. Instead, we we get a catcher who's, you know, we thought, oh, well, that's not bad for the price, four years, $40 million. Okay, that's not terrible. And after the first year, you're just like, oh, man, we got stuck with crap. That was a whiff. No doubt about it. That was a whiff. But you know what worked out? You know, thinking about that offseason, the first real offseason of Steve Cohen, where we expected all these grandiose things, a lot of Met fans, I wasn't one of them, I think you were, were really, really pursuant of George Springer, that he was the guy. Yes. And not that George Springer's been bad with Toronto, because he really hasn't. He had 25 home runs last year, he was fine. Brandon Nimmo has proven to be the guy in center field. And part of the reason we all wanted Springer or a lot of us wanted Springer, going into 2021 was the idea that he's the real center fielder the Mets need. And the truth was, the real center fielder the Mets needed was underneath our nose the entire time. So even though Springer hasn't been bad for Toronto, missed a lot of time in 21, missed a little bit of time in 22, but was still an all-star, don't you think the Mets were better off not signing him? Oh, no question. Because, again, at that time, too, you bring in George. Every We don't want to play, uh, what, Monday morning quarterback, but... If we did sign George Springer, then we would have, A, would Nimmo have not played as much? Would we have pushed him to the side? We played a different position. Who would we not have brought in because of that? So hindsight being 2020, a move was never getting George Springer. And he's been a good player. Been hurt a little bit in the center field. I mean, that playoff game, I mean, he. I think they had to almost cart him off the field. Yeah. Oh, man. You know, as that happened, my tablet, I was at City Field, fell on the ground and shattered. Oh, So George Springer was getting hurt as my tablet was shattering. Uh, I don't know why I told this story. It just it brings it in my head every time. Sparked the memory because you have a shattered tablet still? <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, I actually sent it back because I have Apple Care to get it fixed. And they said, we're sorry, sir. This is completely unfixable. <laughs> and I had to get a new tablet. That's the moral of that story. That was the collision in uh, game two of the Mariners-Blue Jays game, right? Yes, yes. When the Mariners made the comeback. And he he was already hurt prior to that because I remember him, he kept on landing into the center field wall and he was always holding grip in his shoulder, something like that. Like, I don't know what his offseason has been like, but it's been a lot of recovery. I mean, if you told me that he doesn't start the season because he's still recovering, I wouldn't be surprised. It seemed like he was that hurt. That's the big knock on him. He just hasn't really been able to stay healthy, especially over the last four years. He just hasn't been consistently healthy. A couple of other... There are still three left-handed relievers available. I would take any of the three to add to this Met bullpen. Zach Britton, who I'm high on, I really think that Zach Britton could have a big bounce-back season. And it's not that, oh, Buck Showalter's managing him. It's that, think about this with Zach. In 2020, which is not that long ago, he was brilliant. Small sample size, but he was brilliant. 
in 2019, brilliant. In 2018, brilliant. Like, he's been a top reliever for about five years. 2021, he gets hurt, okay? He needs Tommy John surgery. Not effective. Couldn't throw strikes. Misses the rest of the season. This past year, the guy didn't pitch. This was his recovery season. I know there was hope that he would be able to pitch and contribute down the stretch, but when he pitched, he couldn't throw a strike. Okay, I'm willing to throw that away and bet that at 35 years old, Zach Britton's got a comeback in him. David Robertson had a comeback in him, and then the Mets decided to pay him, rightfully so. I'd like to be on the side of, let's pay him a little bit, let's bank on the bounce back happening with us. Because I just don't think Zach Britton's career is over. Now, will he ever get back to being one of the more dominant closers in baseball like he was in 14, 15, and 16? No, but he doesn't have to be. So Zach Britton's one option. Andrew Chafin, who was the apple of our eye last offseason, is still available. And Matt Moore is still available. Matt Moore had his first breakout season as a reliever one year ago. So you remain a little bit skeptical that he can do it again. But he did have a great year last year. We also got the news that Pete Alonzo and the Mets agreed on an arbitration, or agreed on a contract for next year, avoiding arbitration at $14.5 million highest for a first baseman. I was hoping, because I my friends in the Mets text chat him and sent me the link. Jeff Passan, I see Pete Alonzo, I see agrees, I see Mets, I see these keywords jumping out at me on my phone. And for a second, I thought we got a long term contract. We're pulling in Atlanta Braves. Here we go. And then when I saw one year, 14.5, I was a little disappointed because I want to get this thing done. I do. While I have confidence that Steve Cohen will pay our guys, the more I think about this, the more I say, I don't want to risk free agency. I don't want to risk it. Too much crazy crap can happen in free agency. Think about this free agency. Jacob DeGrom, oh, we'll pay him. They decide not to. He goes to Texas. Aaron Judge came this close to going to San Francisco. No matter what he says, it felt like it was this close. Why risk it? I I would rather get Pete and his agent in the room and say, you want to be a Met, we want you to be a Met, let's make some magic. Same thing with Jeff McNeil, by the way. Jeff's a little bit older, he's not a slugger, so you assume the contract's not going to be as... Big as grandiose as the Alonzo contract. Fair or not, that's the reality of baseball. Free agency is such a dangerous game. If you're willing to pay the most, sure, you'll keep your guys. But we have seen so many examples in the last decade of guys that we assumed would never leave their team, leave their team. So I don't know if they're active negotiations. They didn't agree on a number with Jeff McNeil. I don't even know if they were talking to him. Hopefully that means they could talk to him more about a long-term contract. But Alonzo and McNeil have this year and next year before they get to free agency. I would love to see that Jeff Passan bomb come in the next couple of days, weeks, maybe even months, that says, things done. Alonzo's a Met for the next 11 years. Jeff McNeil's a Met for the next six years. That'd be nice to see. Met signed a couple of international free agents. We will not hear about these guys again for about four years. That's usually the way it works. Daverson Gutierrez, a catcher. He's the 27th ranked prospect in the international market. Anthony Baptiste, 
who's the fastest guy in the international market. He was ranked 29. And Christopher Larez, a shortstop. Mets have had some good ones, though. Francisco Alvarez, obviously, international free agent. Alex Ramirez, who's now blossomed into one of their top outfield prospects, international free agent. Jose Reyes, international free agent. We've got a few. Edgardo Alfonso, international free agent. But I saw the names, and I said to myself, okay, we won't hear about them for about another three, four years. That's usually the way it works because they're like 16 years old. What do you expect? And also, Pete, I did the research. You made a request, and I am here to deliver. Oh, boy. What, which one is this now? Because I've made a lot of requests in my days. You have. And this was a good one. This was a really good one. So a couple of weeks ago on the Rico, if you didn't hear this, you can go back to the archives. We started discussing how some of these rule changes will affect the Mets in 2023. And one of the rule changes we were discussing was the pace of play and the fact that there's going to be a pitch Ah, clock. Yes. And we examined how most pitchers violate the pitch clock, or at least the new rules for the pitch clock. And we talked about a couple of the Mets that are really fast and a couple of the Mets that are really slow. And we examined how insanely fast Edwin Diaz was. Edwin Diaz's pace with men on base was one of the highest in all of Major League Baseball, which is surprising because usually relievers more than even starters will slow the pace down. So we went through those numbers, if you missed it, and I explained that Edwin Diaz, on average, will throw the baseball between pitches with men on base at 19.8 seconds, which is incredibly fast and is even below the new rule that's being implemented. So Pete asked a great question. He said... Do you think that led to his success? Like, what was his pace in 2021? What was his pace in 2019? Like, has that changed? Did that contribute to the brilliance of Edwin Diaz? Well, Pete, I have the answer. You actually got me very excited for this right now. Like, I'm, I, I cannot wait to hear what the answer <laughs> is. I hope it's ex- as exciting as you built this up to be. I mean, I don't know if it's exciting or not. <laughs> All right, so in 2022, last year, when Edwin Diaz had the brilliant season that he had, with guys on base, he would throw 19.8 seconds. In 2021, he threw at 23.3, which is significantly lower. I know three and a half seconds may may not sound like a lot, but it is. Like, it's the difference from being one of the fastest working pitchers to being one of the slowest working pitchers. So Edwin Diaz improved his pace with guys on base by three and a half seconds. In 2020, his pace, 22.2, still very slow. In 2019, it was 21.2. So he actually was slowing down over the last couple of years. 21.2 to 22.2 to 23.3, and then all the way down to 19.8. With nobody on base, though, he always worked fast. So that didn't change as much. There's a little bit of a change, but nothing significant. In fact, in 2022, he actually worked slower with nobody on base than he did in 2019, which shows you, if you're looking for anything, like what does that mean? In 2019, the year he was awful, there was a five-second difference between his pace with nobody on base and his pace with guys on base. In 2022, 
there was less than a two-second difference. So maybe that's a, that's a huge difference, that he's not kind of purposely slowing down the way he would in years past, where he would work lightning quick, and then as soon as a guy got on base, he slowed it down. So, yeah, there's a significant difference. Now, here's what's really interesting, though, Pete. If you go to 2018, that was the year he was great for the Seattle Mariners. He threw 20 seconds in between pitches, which is almost as fast as he did in 2022 at 19.8. So he was throwing it at a faster pace. And then for whatever reason with the Mets, that's when the pace started adding up. Hmm. Makes a lot of sense, though. I mean, maybe he was in his own head. Again, you got... It, what we tell these kids, and listen, it's not the same level at all, but we tell kids like just to kind of get into a rhythm, keep pitching, take a deep breath, throw the ball, don't overthink it at times. If he's overthinking what he's doing, I mean, that could lead to a lot of his issues. Oh, no doubt. I mean, I to see that significant of a difference between 21 and 22 does jump out at you. Like, I, if there was less than a second difference, I'd say, ah, yeah, it's pretty much the same thing. That's huge, dude. 23 seconds, you said it was? Yeah, but that wasn't the only thing. The other thing that's huge, and I think we've noticed this just by watching a pitch, is his use of his slider. Last year was the first time in his major league career where he threw his slider more times than he threw his fastball. And the velocity on his slider is up from what it was three years ago, uh, and he's just throwing it a lot more. So his his pitch usage is also different than what we've seen in years past, but certainly the pace has changed, so... I was able to look it up. Look at he you. works lightning fast. But it's not the cure-all because Steven Matz consistently works fast. And what the hell does that mean? Yeah, he still sucks. He still sucks. <laughs> All right, let's read a couple of your emails. I do appreciate the ones that you send to the RicoB at gmail.com. We'll start off with Rob from Belmar. Evan. All right, first he kisses my ass. I'm going to leave that part out because that's like me reading someone saying complimentary stuff is almost like I don't know. There's something about it that turns me off. Do you understand what I'm saying, Hoff? Yeah, I'm not very complimenting myself on a regular basis, so when someone else does it, I don't know how to take it. Just move on. (laughs) No, I I thank you. Like, I appreciate the kind words, Rob, but me repeating it and reading it is almost like I need my ego stroked, and I don't. So, uh, Rob, I saw what you said, and I really, really appreciate it. Just reading it to the audience is like, (laughs) nobody cares. No one wants to hear Rob say he loves me or he hates me. It doesn't matter. Uh, I have to respectfully challenge you on your position on Danny Berger's vocal box. <laughs> I guess he gave him a nickname. <laughs> on a recent Rico, you dismissed the idea of adding Nelson Cruz as essentially being an empty uniform. He's old, not the hitter he used to be, and offers no position versatility. Why I, why I agree with you there, I think Vogelback falls in the same category. He's a young... <laughs> He's a younger, fatter Nelson Cruz. (laughs) He has some pop against righties only, and Buck would be better off fielding only seven defensive players rather than asking Vogie to play any sort of defense. The only position he could realistically play is manned by arguably our best offensive player who very rarely misses any time. You frequently mention how he mashes righties, but I don't think it's anywhere near good enough to justify a roster spot. Okay. He also had a suggestion for a podcast, which is a good one, and I've heard this from numerous people. I'd love to hear an almost Mets podcast. 
acquisitions that were almost made that would have had the most profound impact on the team, both positive and negative, i.e. almost signing A-Rod, almost trading for Griffey, almost signing Trevor Bauer. Very good idea. I do like that one. And I've gotten a few emails suggesting that. I think because in the past, like I think when we were talking about the um, the Hall of Fame bout, the previous Hall of Fame bout, and we were talking about Alan, uh, Rafael Palmero, we brought up, which I wasn't even aware of, how close they were to making a trade for Alomar and Palmero back in 1998. So it does lead you to think, boy, there's so many examples of that. Anyhow, let me get to the Vogelback point. You're right that Daniel Vogelbach doesn't have any position versatility. I mean, you're 100% right about that. I can't argue. The reason I'm dead set against adding a guy like Nelson Cruz is because that's two guys with no position versatility. Like, I accept that Daniel Vogelbach is on this team and has that issue. Like, it is a legitimate thing. You're right about it. He can only play first base. He's not good at first base. There are going to be days you're going to sit Pete. So, now, that's natural, especially having a DH. So I'm good with Vogelbach once every two weeks playing first base, even though he isn't great. You kind of live with it because it's not a lot. But again, he mashes righties. I know you mentioned that and kind of dismissed it, but he does. Like he had 18 home runs in 314 at-bats. He had an 880 OPS. and 880 OPS is an elite level number like it's really good now he's non-competitive against lefties I totally get that and so lefty comes into a game seventh inning Vogelbach's the DH you have to have an alternative which is why it's so important to find that right-handed bat because I don't want to run back Darren Ruff do you no none of us do but yeah, he has no position versatility, but that's why I don't want another guy without position versatility. So could I fight for, who was the email from? Robin Belmar. Robin Belmar. Listen, I'm on your side 100%. First of all, let's just take this for what it is. Darren Ruff by himself was going to make, what, $3 million? And then there's pennies right here we're talking about compared to, uh, you know, Francis Lindor and whatnot. But Nelson Cruz signed a $1 million deal. Daniel Vogelback's 1.5 combined they they make less than what Darren Ruff makes, if I'm correct. I think Darren Ruff makes three mil. Regardless, the point is, is you have two guys that I know that Nelson Cruz, that's the only thing he's good for is power. I know he's towards the ta- very tail end of his career, but my God, if you're got that from the right, the, the left side and vocal back, Cruz has that from the right side, that's your tandem. You don't need but, you don't need anything else other than you yeah, have okay, but, the other guys there. There's t- tons of flexibility with Guillerme on the bench. With Con- if you're gonna make a trade for Santa there, if that's a possibility, kind of floats around. Like you have flexibility in all those other areas. You don't need them. To, you don't need everyone to be flexible. You need bats. no, no. But 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 having two guys on your team, two guys on your team that can't play a freaking position. That's a problem. And here's the thing, though, and reality, and I, I'm I, again, this is further down. Vogelback might not be around much longer on this team anyway. The reality is, if he struggles early on, they may just DFA him. I mean, that's he's he's not very expensive. So, and I've seen him do this plenty of times. I mean, he went through to the Pirates organ. I think the Pirates might have signed yeah, well, him. Well, hold on, you got you guys, you guys have this weird thing with Vogelback. He has an 880 OPS against righties. 
Like, he's a good player when you put him in the right position to succeed. Like, he hits right-handed pitching. I'm not just saying it because I want it to be true. I'm saying it because that's what he does. He's not getting DFA'd. Uh, so how, why did he get DFA'd from other teams prior? I'm talking about now. I'm I talking understand. about this year. I'm talking but about he, last did year. Did he hit 30 home runs one season? Daniel Vogelbach? I think he had one season, or was it 20 home runs? Yeah. Uh, most home runs he ever hit in a season was 30 in 2019. Right. He also had 208 with a 780 OPS that season. <laughs> so he was That's... really all or nothing that season. Listen, I understand there's upside, especially he's so cheap. He's still got another year of arbitration. I, I, I get it. But... There's a possibility that he just doesn't fit this team. He really, he, uh, if you could get one guy to do what we want out of, I know Cruz isn't there, but Ruff and Vogelback, that's going to solve all our problems. Well, look, if there was one guy that could fill that role, absolutely. And there are young guys who could take it. I mean, Brett Beatty could end up being the DH, especially if Escobar or Guillerme play a lot of third base. So there's a lot of possibilities where Vogelback may not play every day if other guys are outperforming him. But I don't like the idea. Because think about it. How many guys do you have on your bench on a normal basis with a 26-man roster? The answer to that is probably five. Do you want two guys that can't play the field, essentially? Plus a backup catcher. Plus plus, uh, gear, May. And we're talking about the Mets carrying three catchers. We've talked about that. Alvarez, Narvaez, and Nito. So you're talking third catcher plus two guys who can't play the field? Anyhow. Uh we got one guy who's going to rip me and one guy who's going to rip you. Let's start with the guy who's ripping me. Jared. Hi, Evan. My name is Jared. I'm 24 years old and a Mets fan. I enjoy your Rico and listen every episode. See, he's complimenting here because then he wants to hammer me. So let's get to the hammer. I thought you don't read compliments, by the way. Yeah, but I, the only reason I'm doing this <laughs> is because it's too hammering me. So when you do a compliment and then turn it around, like, that's fine. However, I have one request to make, and it relates to how you pronounce the name of one of my favorite players, Luis Guillerme. <laughs> I'm not sure if you're aware, but you pronounce Mr. Guillerme's name as Guillerme. All announcers and commentators I've heard pronounce his name as Guillerme. The Mets pronunciation guide lists it as Guillerme as well. If you could make this adjustment, it would make my Rico listening experience that much better. Thanks, and LFGM. All right, so here's the deal, Jared. I promise you, I'm not trying to be a dick here. I think I have a mental block. I really do. And anytime I'm pronouncing something wrong and someone comes to correct me, I appreciate it. Like, I'm not mad about it. But then I have this tick in my head. As soon as I'm corrected, I forget what the correct pronunciation is. I'll give you a few examples in my past. Damon Amendolara. You know that guy? DA. Great guy. Great host. I filled in with him once five years ago. And I'm like, oh, it's Evan Roberts, Damon Amendolara here on the fan. And at one point at 530, he looks at me and says, Evan, I feel bad saying this, but you're saying my name wrong. And ever since he corrected me, I can't remember how to pronounce it. Is it Amendolara? Is it a Mendelara? It's like a mental block. He could tell me every day and I'm going to forget. And it's nothing against him. It's that as soon as I'm corrected, my mind starts playing tricks with me. Example number two. Remember former pitcher Logan Verrett or Logan Verrett? I don't know how to pronounce it. Is it Verrett? Is it Verrett? I don't know. 
Our old boss, Eric Spitz, used to correct me all the time. And the first time he corrected me, I said, I'm done. Now I don't know. So here's the problem. I just read that email from Jared. I'm no longer looking at my tablet. Is it Guillerme or is it Guillerme or Guillerme? I don't know. Hoff, how do you pronounce his name? Uh, Luis Guillerme. I think that's what he said. I have no idea though either. And I do this all the time, but we all do. And we all have these hiccups and it's okay. We c- it's not the end of the world. Get over. What, what is people a fascination of us nailing everything perfect every no, time? So We're not perfect. Being- you're being wrong, Pete. I want to be perfect. I want to make Jared happy. The guy's downloading the podcast. He wants to smile. So I need a mnemonic device in my head that's going to remind me the correct way to pronounce his name. Or, right? That's the key word is or, gi, or, may. Is it gi or may? There you go. I think I got it now. We should we should call up Tony Page, have him come on and, and pronounce Travis Darno for everybody. Did he used to call him <laughs> Travis Darnold? Or was it Sam Darno? One of the one of the other he, he confused something. <laughs> I forget which one. All right, here's David Arenas. He wants to rip you. Oh, I'm a New Yorker, born and raised, lived out there for the first 20 years of my life. I've lived in Minnesota for 22 out of the last 23 years now. Okay, love the Mets, diehard fan, blah blah blah. Pete, I have a bone to pick with you in your last podcast. Don't bash Minnesota because they signed Correa. To be honest, the fans are lukewarm at best at the signing because they feel the poll odds are similar to what the Wilpons were when they were our owners. They don't spend on pitching, then they all know that they're never going to get over the hump until they get a better pitching staff. That's all I had to say about, about them. Don't bash their fan base. They know as much as we do. How about that? A pro Minnesota guy. You want to apologize to Minneapolis? No, I mean that was pretty soft. I I appreciate him coming at me so hard with that email. But now, listen, I wasn't bashing. I was just was saying he's gonna have to sit around in July with the uh, long sleeve shirts on. That's all. <laughs> that, that that's all I was saying. I, listen, I respect all organizational like fans that are that are. You, I I look at fan bases because we've been there before. So it's not right for me to sit there and bash other fan bases at all. I can't do that. Like, I look at whether it's the Twins, whether it's the Royals, even though they won a World Series. You look at all these. It's We've been through the ringer with our team. So it's a different world we live in now. I'm excited by it. I, I am getting a little greedy at times. We're talking about two years from now with what free agents we're going to get. We can't right think about the now right now. But I, I'm not sitting there and killing the fan base. But I can crush the player and his hopes and dreams of what his career is going to look like. And also deep down, the reason Pete Hoffman hates the Minnesota Twins is because you guys wilt at the side of the New York Yankees. If you could have beaten them once, whether it was 2009 or it was 2004 or it was 2003 or it was 2019, that would have been appreciated. But instead, every time you see the Yankees, you will. And finally, Gerald Caffrey. Evan... When you were talking about how you heard the Carlos Correa news, you called somebody a Yankee douche, and then abruptly the podcast cut to an ad for the Mike Francesa podcast. This has to be a jab. No? No! It's not a jab. You think I know when the commercials are going to play? I have no idea. So I'm to make something clear. I was not referring to my former co-worker and all-around great guy, Mike Francesa, as a Yankee douche. That was not the case. 
and not true. Pete, you offer you get better off offer the audience an apology. That I di- listen, I did <laughs> nothing wrong. I didn't even real I have we have no idea what ads are playing. So the fact that that's the it's a major coincidence, hilarious, but major coincidence. I had no idea that we even run over my Francis ads. <laughs> Thank you for uh, emailing us and of course you can the recop at gmail.com. A lot of podcasts coming up over the next few months that I'm very excited about. We will do a Carlos Beltran retrospective and where his place should be in Mets history as he is certainly on the Hall of Fame ballot. We'll talk about the Hall of Fame ballot and how those guys have histories with the New York Mets. We'll have our Max Scherzer-Justin Verlander debate. And out of the request of a few emailers, the Could Have Been Mets podcast. But one idea I had, and I'll take suggestions uh, via email, the RicoB at gmail.com, or I guess you could leave a comment on the podcast. I was thinking about doing a rewatch during this long off season. And what I mean by that is picking a game in Met history that's available on YouTube. And there's a lot of games available on YouTube. Maybe it's a game from the last 20 years. Maybe it's even longer ago than that. Maybe it's the 70s. Maybe it's the 80s. Maybe it's the 90s. Maybe it's a game we did watch just a long time ago and re-watching the game, and then we could all sit here and analyze it as if it just happened. The problem I'm having, while I think it would be fun to do, I can't decide, A, if it should be a win. Should we just watch a great Met victory and be happy? Should it be an all-time loss? And then what era it should be from? So if you have a suggestion on that, a strong opinion on that, Certainly let me know by leaving a comment where you can leave comments for the podcast or by emailing us at thericob at gmail.com. We'll do that at some point during this offseason as we start to creep closer and closer to spring training and then spring training games and then before you know it, opening day. Appreciate you listening. You can check Pete out with Tiki and Tini during the week on the Midday Show and obviously me and Craig, 2 o'clock in the afternoons on WFAN. Thank you for downloading and listening to Rico Bronia. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Rico Bronya podcast. It's amazing, isn't it? Make sure you download it now to keep it on you at all times.